You can open up your Bible if you have one. We're in the very beginning of the Bible these last several weeks, and we're going to continue in Genesis chapter 1. This is going to be, uh, I think, our last message in Genesis chapter 1, so I'll give you a few minutes to find that. Uh, but I want to say a welcome to you if you're a guest with us this morning, uh, whether you live here locally or maybe you're from out of town uh, visiting someone. Uh, whatever has brought you here today, we're glad you're here and thankful that you're worshiping with us and have already prayed for you this morning, but we'll uh, continue to. Uh, pray that the Lord uses this morning and what you hear, what uh, you engage in to, to minister to you. If you do live here locally and you don't have a church home and you'd be interested just certainly in knowing more about God, but even potentially in knowing more about our church, uh, we'd love to get to know you better, uh, get to know a little bit about you. You could fill out what we call a connection card. It's very simple. You could either fill out the one that's on the back of your paper program, uh, take that with you back out into the lobby at the end of the morning and take a left out there. There'll be somebody there who'd love to talk to you for a few minutes. Uh, uh, or you could fill it out digitally too, follow that QR code and we'll follow up with you uh, as well in the days to come. Uh, but we're grateful that you're here with us. As always, I thank you uh, to those of you who are a regular part of our church family uh, for your ongoing generosity to the general fund of our church as we seek to be faithful with what God's given to us uh, to, to fund ministries here in our community and all over the, the world. I would encourage you to continue to give and to continue to, to be good stewards of, of what God has granted to you as we try to pull resources for the sake of the kingdom. All right. Uh, we, today is kind of a special day for me. Uh, I was realizing this just a couple days ago, and then Pastor Larry, actually he's in New Jersey, but he reminded me of this this morning, uh, that 13 years ago today, on October 1st of 2010, I walked into the door over here uh, for my first day of employment at CCC. And so this is 13 years, but, and I, I did not grow up in a small town. I grew up in a bigger city where you could go out to the store and you'd be anonymous. And it would be very rare to even know anybody out in public. It has taken me about 13 years to get used to when I go to the store seeing people I know. And oh, I know this person, I know that person, and I know that person. And one of the things I've learned in small town life is the interconnectedness of everyone. There's often been these experiences I have that maybe you have too of where I'll know person A and I'll know them in their context and I'll even know them decently well and then I'll know person B and I'll have met them and know their context decently well and then something will happen. I'll see something on social media or I'll see them uh, out in public engaging with each other or something and I'll all of a sudden realize like, oh, those people are related. Like that's so and so's daughter or that's so-and-so's brother there's even people in this room I've learned that with like people that I knew as just church folks here that I've learned oh that's so-and-so's brother or that's so-and-so's sister and I, I have I've had numerous times over these 13 years these aha moments of interconnectedness of people and the reason I mention that is because I, I have found that and what I'm going to try to demonstrate uh, in the scriptures today is I've found that similar dynamic sometimes with passages of scripture that I'll be super familiar with this. Like I've grown up hearing this text, this story all the time from since I was little and I feel like I know it very well. Then I've heard this text, I've heard this story and I feel like I know it inside and out. But then there's sometimes these moments just in worship or in reading, things like that where I realize all of a sudden, whoa, these are very similar. Like these have a connection I never really saw before that I never knew existed but it's always been there. And what I want to show from the scriptures this morning as we get to the end of Genesis 
Genesis chapter 1, as we keep going on our journey through these first 11 chapters of the Bible, is there's a very famous text here that we're going to read this morning that people have often called the cultural mandate, where God tells Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Uh, we've maybe grown up, many of us, hearing that command. It's a very famous part of the Bible. But what I want to see by the end of the sermon, after we walk through this text, is to see its relationship with another passage you might be very familiar with as well, that we call often the Great Commission. Uh, it's just in Matthew chapter 28, where the resurrected Jesus is about to go back to heaven, and he gives this famous command to his disciples, and by extension to us who are Christians today, where he says, go and make disciples of all nations, and baptize them, and teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. By the end of the sermon, my hope is that you see you have kind of an aha moment to see whoa these texts uh, come from the same source they, they have much overlap one is the reiteration of the other but more than just having some sort of like aha moment uh, I hope that you have that if you've never had that before with these two texts but more than that I hope you have a a motivational aha moment that you have a desire to actually do these things not just to see oh they're related isn't that awesome uh, but to see they're related and God has repeated it for our sake so that we're faithful to do it so that we're faithful to actually bring these things into reality to live them out in our lives and so we're going to spend most of our time in the last several verses the last paragraph of Genesis 1 but if you want to go ahead and put your finger in Matthew 28 or have that ready to read later we'll also hit that text of scripture as well but we're going to read here in just a moment Genesis 1 verses 28 to 31 it's the last paragraph of this first chapter of the Bible but I want, if you haven't been with us, or even if you have, I want to quick just get us back up to speed to where we are here in this first chapter. So we've taken the last several weeks and we've seen a few things that have been, I hope, helpful to you, challenging to you, encouraging to you. We've seen that Genesis is this ultimate backstory, right? It is the backstory of backstories. It goes back to the very beginning and it's a true backstory. It's not just make-believe, it's not just some myth uh, that Moses wrote down, but Moses recorded it for the ancient Israelites as they're about to go finally into the promised land. He, he recorded it so they could know their backstory. And then now as we as all human beings read it, we know our backstory as, as creatures that God has made. We've seen that God created the entire universe out of nothing. Right, that he spoke it into existence. We've seen that over a course of six days, which we're going to finish the sixth day this morning, that he's created these spaces, like the heavens and then the sky and the seas and the land. He's created these spaces, and then he's filled them with the sun and the moon and then with birds and with fish and with land animals, even as he started day six. But what we saw last Sunday, Pastor Jake preached for us, which did a wonderful job. Uh, thank you again, brother. Uh, we saw that on the sixth day, after God created, created land animals, God created the pinnacle of his creation in human beings that he made Adam and Eve, and he put his image upon them and in them. Uh, Jake, Pastor Jake explained that to us last week, uh, that how human beings have been endowed, every person in this room, including you, but also including your enemies or including those who are dramatically different from you. Every human being has the image of God, has dignity, has significance. We've seen all these sorts of things. But here as we turn to these last verses of Genesis 1, we're going to see that God now speaks to the human beings, right? The, for the last couple verses that we read last week, he's talked about them, like let us make man in our image and uh, how in the image of God he made them. Now he's going to turn and talk 
to them. He's going to say something to these very first human beings. And we get the privilege of eavesdropping, of listening in on what happened and what God said. And so I'm going to read this for us, Genesis 1, 28 through 31. So follow along with me in your copy of the scriptures. So Moses continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit writing this. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to make sure before we eventually get to Matthew chapter 28, I want us to take a close look at this first text, uh, this text that is often called the cultural mandate, to understand what's happening here, uh, what was happening in this very first day of human existence, God's interaction, his speech uh, to Adam and Eve before we see a connection with what Christ commanded his disciples. And so I want to show you a few things, walk back through this paragraph, show, highlight a few things from this text that are significant to make sure that we're understanding it rightly. So if you go back to the very beginning of what I read, Genesis 1, 28, uh, before God speaks and says something to Adam and Eve, we actually have one last narrator comment. It says, and God bless them. So the very first thing that happens here is that God blesses. God blesses Adam and Eve. And there's, there's much that could be said about this, but I think, I think it's significant. That's not just a throwaway sentence. Uh, it's important that God blesses them before he commands them. Uh, you see in these early chapters of Genesis, we've actually already seen it. Uh, back in verse 22, God said something very similar uh, to the sea creatures and the birds. Uh, he, you'll, we'll see it later in Genesis chapter 9 when God speaks to Noah as he comes off of the ark. Uh, there's this tie in the early chapters of Genesis when it says God blesses someone, there's this tie to him giving an ability for them to actually be fruitful. That's what blessing seems like it means here in context, that God blesses them in order for them to be able to do what he's about to tell them to do, to be fruitful, to multiply. It's like he's giving them the capacity to do the thing he's about to command. And I so appreciate that that sentence is there because it's a reminder to us, I'll just say very simply, it should be a reminder to all of us that without God's blessing, without God's empowerment, we can do nothing, right, to honor him. If, if God doesn't bless, he could command, and we're going to lack the capacity to actually do it, uh, to, to do what he calls us to do. But when God blesses, he imparts the ability to do what he calls you to do. Right? And so God blesses before he commands. This is a pattern that you see uh, throughout the scriptures. Uh, but the first thing is that God blesses. But then God does turn as we get to the second part of verse 28. God does give this series of commands, doesn't he? So after he blesses Adam and Eve, there's this second thing that he does where God commands. You see that through the rest of verse 28. And this is the part of this paragraph that often gets called the cultural mandate. Or some people call it the creation mandate. It's this very first 
command that we a series of commands that we have that God gave to human beings. He's going to give a whole host more as time goes on, but this is the very first thing that he tells Adam and Eve. And I so appreciate that God actually gives them commands, right? God does not just launch Adam and Eve on this quest of self-discovery, right? Of we have to figure out what to do. We need to figure out what to do on this planet, what to do with these bodies, what to do uh, with this creation. He directs them, right? From the very beginning, he's giving them direction about how to live and what they're even there for at all. And so he gives them, if you count, he gives them five commands there at the end of verse 28, right? He says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, Four, subdue it, and five, have dominion over the creatures, over the the land animals, the sea creatures, the birds have dominion over them. There's five commands there. I think really you could group them in two commands, like two categories of commands. And there's different ways you could say this, but just categories I was thinking of this week uh, in trying to summarize this is that they're essentially called the two things are to reproduce and then to represent. Uh, to reproduce and represent. And so first he calls them to reproduce, right? That's the first three commands. He says to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth, right? That's self-explanatory too. As be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, right? So God's intent from the very beginning, we're going to see in Genesis chapter 2, he places Adam and Eve in this garden of Eden. But his intent, you see, right from the beginning, was not for them to just stay in Eden, right? He's saying, as human beings, I want you to fill this earth. Like, I I want you to go out to the ends of this earth that I have made as human beings. That was always God's intent. So they're they're to reproduce. They're to have children who have children who have children. That's the command that he gives to Adam and Eve. And I just want to pause and note a couple things. One, and this is a very important corrective, I think, in our day and age, in our culture, of declining birth rates or of sometimes married couples who choose to not have children, things like that. This stands as a testament, as a monument to us of the goodness of childbearing, Uh, that, that children are a gift, that God commands them, these first human beings, to be fruitful and to multiply, right? So childbearing is a gift of God. It's it's a command even of God here to Adam and Eve. And I also want to note, before we get way too far away from last week's text of verse 26 and 27, I, I wanted to note what has always been, I think, obvious to human beings, but we are starting to forget in our culture that this process of childbearing, of being fruitful, multiplying, filling the earth, that it requires a man and a woman. Right, that it requires a male and a female. God created his world this way on purpose, where this core act of procreation needed a man and a woman. And no matter how scientifically advanced we get, I think it is always going to need a man and a woman, right? It's no coincidence that back in verse 27, it says that God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. If it just stopped there, you could think it's just Adam. But then he says male and female he created them. And we'll get uh, an ability, we'll have opportunity as we get into chapter 2 and 3 to return to this, uh, this teaching of the scriptures of the differences, the uniqueness of male and female. But I just want to pause and not miss the opportunity to, to point out that maleness and femaleness, male and female, are not social constructs. They are divine constructs, right? God made man, God made woman. They're not like poles on the end of a spectrum, 
right? That we just choose where we go or we slide down one into the other. We are male or female. And God has made us that way from the beginning. And it's a core necessity to do this act of procreation, to, to bear children, to fill the earth, and to subdue it. So the first thing he calls them to do is to reproduce. The second thing you see in the last two commands there is that they're to represent God. As they have children, as they spread out over this earth, what they're supposed to do is to represent the rule of God. God rules over all things. Uh, he he is, rules over all as the creator, but he places man and woman, humanity, uniquely in this place, in this world, to rule over it, right? The last two commands here, he's, after he says to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, he says to subdue it, right? And then he says more specifically, have dominion over the creatures in it. That's language of ruling, of, of, of governance. And so a couple of things you can see there in those commands is that uh, even the world before sin entered it needed some sort of cultivation, right? Like God made the Garden of Eden special. We'll see that in chapter two. But this idea of needing to subdue it doesn't that imply that there's going to need to be work? There's going to need to be effort. There's going to be things that need to be cultivated or changed or harnessed, even in a world that had no sin in it. And these image bearers, Adam and Eve, and then their descendants were supposed to spread out over the earth and lovingly rule over it, to take care of it, to, to be responsible with it and all the parts of it. And I would just note this and I have felt convicted, admittedly, this week of sometimes how dismissive or judgmental I can be towards like, environmentalists, towards people who have a deep care for our world. I was convicted in a good way, I think, in reading this text. Again, to remember, God has made human beings with a unique responsibility for this planet and for the animals that live on it. Not just our pets that are in our house or something like that, but for all the creatures of this planet. That we have a unique responsibility as human beings to steward this world that God gave us. Uh, and to not just view it as something for us to ransack and to pillage, but to, to use it wisely, to be good stewards of it. And there, there's much that could be said about that. I'd love to discuss that with some of you. But we are all still to this day to represent God even in how we interact with his creation. Not just with fellow human beings, although that's important, but with all of the creation, everything that God has made, we've been given a special place. And so he commands them. He, he blesses them. God commands them to reproduce and to represent him as they go across this world. But a couple other things you see from this text before we move towards Jesus' great commission is that after God commands Adam and Eve, he reminds them of his provision for them. So I think the third thing you see in this text is that God provides. And you see this in verses 29 and 30. And it's like God repeats himself. He, he says to them, uh, Behold, I have given you every plant, right? I have given you every tree. You shall have them for food. And then verse 30, he's still talking to Adam and Eve, and he wants them to know even for these animals, I've given them their food. Like, I provide food for them, right? It is interesting here that at the first mention of food, there are not laws given about food, right? There's going to be lots of laws that, that come about food, even in chapter, uh, the chapters that follow, chapter 2 and 3. There's these commands about not eating certain food. But here, before there's any commands or any restrictions, God is reminding them that he is the provider of their food. 
that he is the one who keeps them alive. He is the one who has created this world uh, with a full pantry for them to be able to go and eat and to live and to have their sustaining uh, energy uh, for life. And I so appreciate that God, if you read the wording here in verses 29 and 30, God doesn't just say, behold, there's food for you. Right? He says, behold, I have given you this food. Like, I made this world before you were even in it. Like, you were the last thing I made. I prepped it for you. Like, I, I made this world with things you could eat, things you could enjoy, things that you will need to actually live the life, to actually do the things that I call you to do. And even before sin entered the world, even before it gets corrupted, God made human beings with an ongoing need to eat, Right? Like that, that there was always going to be this need to have something outside of yourself coming into you to give you life, to keep you alive. That's how God made us from the very beginning. That's not a part of the fall. It's a part of God's good creation that we need nourishment. We need energy from outside of us. And I would just say as a, a quick word of application that may our prayers that we say before meals, if, if you're a person or a family or a, a friend group that does that, May our prayers before meals not just be rituals, not just be like habit that we do. Yeah, thank you, God, for the food. Amen. But may they actually be things we use to disciple ourselves, to disciple our children, to remind the people that we're sitting with this very food. Yeah, it may have come from my refrigerator, or yeah, it may have come from the store. I think we are spoiled, side note, in our day and age where we have pantries and we have freezers and we have refrigerators and we have grocery stores. We forget this that we are dependent upon God for the very food that keeps us alive. Uh, that that every, every day that I'm alive is a, a gift of God, that he's given me food through whatever means to actually nourish my body. But may we use those prayers before meals to disciple ourselves, to remind our children, to remind our guests that God has given us this food, that he is the one who keeps us alive. Uh, may we not be spoiled, ungrateful uh, creatures, but may we be thankful for every food, every meal that God provides for us. And so you see God provides. And the last thing I'll just mention briefly as we get to the end of this paragraph is that after God blesses, after he commands, after he mentions his provision as that fourth is God assesses his creation. It's like the, the, the creator kind of steps back metaphorically as we get to the end of the text. In verse 31 it says that God saw everything he had made and behold it was very good. Uh, other times early in this chapter, it's just said that God saw it was good, and it was good, and it was good. Here, once it's all in place, and once land animals, and especially these human beings are in place as these rulers to spread and to represent God on this earth, God sees now that it is very good, right? And this is just an important thing for us to note that biblically speaking, understanding what God has told us, he made this world, this universe, good. He did not make it originally bad with evil mixed in. Like he made a good world. The, the corruption that has come into it is the fault of human beings. Uh, us rulers who have misused it, who have mishandled it. But God assesses his creation in the beginning before sin enters. And he sees it as very good. So God creates a good world. And this mandate, this cultural mandate, I would suggest to you, it has never been revoked. Like this command that was given to these very first human beings, I think still stands to this day. 
Uh, there's never an indication. Uh, at, God even says almost this exact thing, same thing verbatim to Noah when he steps off the ark. Right? This command didn't just stop when sin enters. Like it gets reiterated again and again uh, to Noah eventually, and I think we're going to see through Jesus and the commands that he gave. This, this cultural mandate has never been revoked. It is something that is pre-fall of man, right? That applies to every human being, not just to Christians, uh, not just to ancient people, but to every human being. I think this mandate continues. But we have been royal failures at keeping it, haven't we? This call to reproduce in different ways, this call certainly to represent God around this world, we have been royal failures, every single one of us, right? As you read through the rest of the New Testament, uh, every person, Adam and Eve onward, uh, fails. They fail to be these good stewards, these good rulers over the world that God has given. There's these little glimpses, and then you see failures. In the nation of Israel, you see these glimpses, and you see these failures. But God keeps promising, God keeps growing this expectation amongst his people that someday what he was envisioning there in Genesis 1 is going to happen. That someday there's going to be this world with image bearers of God who perfectly, fully, truly represent him. God doesn't want them to lose the hope of that. He wants them to grow in their anticipation that that will come to be. It's not happening in Israel. It's not happening in the days of Noah. It's not happening in any of these days. But God is saying again and again in different ways, it is going to happen. Like there's in Habakkuk chapter 2, just as one example, the, the prophet He said this, I love this, just with this image of spreading over the world. He wrote this, that for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That was this prophetic message that even before Jesus came, someday this is going to happen. Like there's going to be the glory of God known all over this planet. There's going to be people everywhere worshiping God, knowing him, representing him well. But even after he said that, Continued failure, continued disobedience, continued rebellion against God, right? Adam and Eve rebelled before they ever reproduced, and we've done the same thing. Like, we just have continued that path of rebellion. But eventually, and God knew he was going to do this all along. He knew this before Genesis 1. Eventually, God sends his son, who we know now as Jesus Christ, into this world to actually do what he commanded in Genesis 1 to actually reproduce followers of God, to actually represent God, how God intended to be represented as a human being in this world, right? When Jesus came into our world for multiple decades as he went from childhood to adolescence to adulthood, he actually obeyed completely, fully, truly the commands of God. He did what Adam was supposed to do. Right? He did what we all have been supposed to do of actually representing God and obeying God and doing what God commands. If you want to use this as a verb, he imaged God perfectly. Right? Like he reflected God perfectly. He reproduced followers. He represented God. And God's assessment, we know this, God's, the Father's assessment of Jesus, just like of his creation back at the beginning, God's assessment of Jesus was very good, right? He was living rightly. He was ruling rightly. He was doing what God had called humanity 
to do. It's like at long last, right? A faithful image bearer. As someone who actually does what God said to do. Who does what Adam was supposed to do at last, right? But then there's the cross. And the sixth day of that week, as that Friday was wrapping up and coming to a conclusion. The sixth day of this first week, you got this first man standing on the earth, living before sin, like how God intended him for, and that, that went awry quickly, right? But on the sixth day of this final week of Jesus' life, the way it ends is not with life, right? The way it ends is with this better Adam, this one who actually did obey, not being rewarded by God, but being punished by God. Like him not being brought to life, but him being put to death. And this could be so confusing to us to think, why? Like why when there's finally, after thousands of years, this person, this human being, this once, finally, this person who obeys, who, who images God rightly, why would you put him to death? And the reason is for us, right? The reason God the Father put his perfect son to death was so that we might be forgiven, that we might be reconciled to God. What God did was he counted the sins of people like us onto this perfect son, onto this better Adam who had never sinned. He counted our sins to him, and he put him to death in our place. The, the judgment that we all deserve as rebels against God was laid upon Christ so that it would not have to be laid upon us. So you have this better Adam put to death by the Heavenly Father, not just by Roman soldiers. He could have stopped them if he wanted to, right? But put to death by God. And the sixth day of that week ends with him in a tomb, right? Not with him walking around, ruling the planet, but with him in a tomb. But then on the first day of this new week, right, that God begins this new creation, God, God begins this new creation where he, the first thing he creates in this new creation, it was in the first creation, the last thing he made was a human being, right? In the new creation, the very start of the first day of that new week, the very first part of this new creation is the resurrected Jesus Christ. Like God raised him back up from the dead better than Adam because Jesus now cannot die right? Like Adam had the capacity to sin. He had the capacity to die. Jesus does not. He, when he was breathed life back into him in that tomb, he was fundamentally different and better even than he had been in some ways than he, when he went to the cross. He was, was raised with a body indestructible, right? And God started this new creation that first day of the week, that Sunday morning long ago. And the great privilege that we have as rebels against this God, is that he is willing to let us become part of that new creation, right? Us who have continued to rebel, continue just like Adam, to, to not represent him well, to run away from him. God gives even us the privilege of being part of this new creation. It's like God says, hey, that life that I gave to my son in the tomb that morning, I will let you share in it. That reward he gained for you by those decades of faithful service, I will let you share in that. Like, you see how I just raised him from the dead never to die again? I will do that for you. Like, your body doesn't just have to stay in a tomb, and you don't have to fear eternal judgment that you deserve from me. But because my son died for you, I offer you pardon. 
And I, I promise you, if you come to me in repentance, turning from your sin and in faith in my son, I promise you, I will raise you up with him. And you will be part of my new creation now and forever. And many of us in the room have already become part of that. Like our hearts are thrilled every Sunday when we come together because remember, I'm part of that new creation. God has saved me. He's brought me together with his son. But there are many every Sunday in this room who have not. You are still part of the old creation. You are still linked to Adam. You are still living like him. You're still living in rejection of God. And today, and every day God offers you this, but today he offers you, whether you're hearing it for the first time or the thousandth time, he offers you, if you will turn from your rebellion like Adam and you will trust in the son that that God punished in your place and raised for you, if you will turn from your sin, place your trust in Christ, you today will become part of that new creation. You will be forgiven Of 100% of your sins, past, present, future, you'll be united with Christ this very moment and forever. He offers that to you. Not, I love that song we sang earlier. Thank you, Ben, for leading us in that song about it's, I can't bring anything to God to make him forgive me. I can't promise him decades of obedience that'll make him forgive me. The only thing I can appeal to him with and the only thing you can appeal to him with is the cross of Jesus Christ, that your sins were paid for there. And if you do that, God will forgive you this very day. Take him up on it. Like he does not turn anyone away. So praise God for that better Adam uh, that has come for us in this new creation. I want to end by taking us to the Great Commission, this other famous text. We've looked at Genesis 1, this cultural mandate. I want to make some connections for us, for you, with this text that we might also be familiar with that's called the Great Commission. Because the resurrected Jesus, that one who was raised from the dead, he gives another mandate of sorts, right, to his disciples. As he's getting ready to ascend back to the Father where he is even to this day, he gives a mandate to his followers a mandate even to us by extension. I would suggest to you that this bears a striking resemblance to Genesis 1. Uh, that, that it's, and that's not coincidence. Like this is an echo of it, or I would tend to think that Genesis 1 is kind of like a, if I can even think this way, like a pre-echo of what Jesus was going to say here in Matthew chapter 28. I want to read this for you, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And these will be very familiar to a lot of you. Some of you, this may be new. But this is after Jesus has been raised from the dead. Uh, he, He has his disciples assembled with him on this mountain, and it says this. Jesus came and said to them, and here are the similarities with Genesis 1. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. You probably can note some of the similarities there. Back in Genesis 1, before the fall, before sin, right? God the Father, he commissions his image bearers, right? To go on his behalf and with his authority and he commands them to reproduce and to represent him throughout the earth, right? That's what happened in Genesis 1. God the Father uh, commissioning image bearers to go on his behalf with his authority to reproduce and represent him 
throughout the earth. Here, you have post-resurrection. Now you have God the Son speaking after he's been raised from the dead. And what does he do? What does he command? What is the commission that he gives? He does it remarkably similarly. He, he commissions his disciples to go on his behalf, right, with his authority to reproduce and to represent him, right, all over the earth, to, the, to all nations, to the ends of the earth. This is a, a beautiful thing that I, it, I don't think I was an adult till I noticed some of these connections, Genesis 1, Matthew 28. But God the Father speaks in Genesis 1. God the Son speaks very similar here in Matthew 28. And what he commissions us to do, if you're united with Jesus, what he commissioned us to do here uh, via these disciples and the commission he gave to them was to reproduce and to represent, right? Like we are commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to reproduce spiritually, I would say, right? Jesus here in Matthew 28, he, he's not commanding people to bear biological children, right? He's not saying, hey, every single one of you needs to get married, make sure you have uh, 2.5 kids, whatever, like that you need to physically reproduce. What Jesus is commissioning is a supernatural, a spiritual reproduction, right? He says, go make disciples, not go make babies, right? He's very pro making babies in marriage, but what he commands is make disciples, and that's something every Christian can do, right? That is something every Christian of every age, every stage of life can do because what Jesus cares about here, what he's commissioning is not just that peop- babies be born, but that human beings be born again, right? And we have the capacity in God's providence to be part of seeing that happen, right? Because the way that happens, the way people are born again, the way disciples are made is that people who've already been born again, like us, we go and tell them the same message that saved us. We go tell them about the Savior. We go tell them about the forgiveness and the eternal life that God offers, and he brings spiritual life. Like, he brings them to himself. He raises them with his son, right? This is so important. I, I don't want this to be lost in us, that this command is is not just for the married, right? If we were thinking of like biological reproduction, this command that Jesus gives is not just for the married. It's not just for the fertile, right? It is for every Christian. Every Christian can and should be part of doing this, of fulfilling this command of seeing disciples be made that become followers of God, who become one with his son, right? There is this beautiful text in Isaiah chapter 56. I wanted to read it for you. I was telling one of my kids this morning what a eunuch is. That's an interesting conversation to have with kids, by the way. But I was trying to prep them for this text. Kids, if you don't know what a eunuch is, I'll let you ask your mom or dad. But I think most of the grown-ups in the room, I think, know what a eunuch is. If you could imagine, though, imagine a eunuch. If that person, if he thinks that the only way I can be faithful to God is doing exactly what Genesis 1 said to be fruitful and multiply. How in the world? I can't do that. 
I can't. Like, how can I honor God? I have no heirs. I have no. I can't have people coming behind me to care for me or to carry on my name. I, like, I am. I have no hope. Like, I can't do what God has commanded me to do. And there's this message from God via Isaiah in Isaiah 56, the middle of verse three down to verse five. Hear this. He says, "Let not the eunuch say." Behold, I'm a dry tree. And you get the metaphor there, right? Let him not say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me, and who hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And he, it's like he was telling them, like, look, biological family is wonderful. Yes, I commanded that. I, I love seeing families spread. I love seeing children be born, grandchildren be born, generations to be born to follow after me. But that is not the only way to please me. But because before you become, and even if you never become a father or a mother or a grandfather or a grandmother, you are a child of mine. Like, you are someone I've brought into my family you have significance in that alone, that you're loved by me, you're cared for forever by me. But it's like by extension, he's saying, like, you will be able to leave a legacy. Like, your name doesn't have to die when you die, but you can teach other people. This isn't explicit here, but I think it's implied. You can teach other people to follow me. And they don't have to be your biological heirs. They don't have to be your flesh and blood sons and daughters. They can be any image bearer of God. You can call them to love their creator. You can call them to return to him. And that is true to this day. So if you are single, whether you are content in that or not, you can fulfill the great commission of Christ, which is a fulfillment of the cultural mandate of Genesis 1. You can make disciples of Christ, right? Within your extended family, within this church family and teaching, within neighborhoods that you live in, you can make disciples of Christ. Those who are married but who have not been able to bear biological children, you can fulfill the Great Commission, which is a fulfillment of the cultural mandate by making disciples of Christ, by by spreading the, the word of God, the good news of Christ to others. You can be part of fulfilling that Great Commission. For those who are in latter stages of life and who have no longer biological capacity to bear children, or those who are widows or widowers in the room, like those who have no children of their own biologically or within their family, every single one of us can fulfill this great commission. Like we can take, and we ought to take, the good news that God has given to us and pass it along to the people who are around us, pass it along to the people that are coming behind us. And so I would just ask every single one of us, no matter what stage of life we're in or what form of life we are in, is who are you sharing the gospel with? Like, who are you seeking to reproduce yourself in, right? Like, who, who are you seeking to be brought into the kingdom of God that is not yet part of the kingdom of God? Who are you praying for? Like, who are you pursuing? Who are you asking God to give you favor with, an opportunity to speak with? Who are you begging God to save? 
This commission calls every single one of us to be reproducing, but it also calls, in these words of Jesus, he calls us to represent him as we live our life. Uh, Not just to reproduce, we are called to do that, to seek to make other disciples here. And this is is a more than a side note, but it has to be a side note today. I don't want to miss this before I move to the we represent him part. I, I don't want it to be lost in us that in the Great Commission, Jesus says that we are to make disciples of all nations, right? Cultural mandate was fill the earth and subdue it. Like, I am thankful to God that our church has been one for decades now that has a heart for the nations, that has a heart to see people that are in places that have no gospel yet, who have no ability to even know Christ, that we want to be senders of our people to go to them, to run after them the same way that God sent Christ after us. We want to go after them. We want to take the good news of Christ to them. May we never grow weary of that task. I I pray regularly that there will be more people, especially amongst younger generations, but amongst all of us, to go to the nations to reproduce, right? Like to go to the nations to see disciples made of Christ. May we not lose that ever as a church, but may we grow in it, right? So we reproduce. The last thing, we are called in this commission to represent Christ as we go, right? He said to make disciples of all nations, uh, but he tells them though, like I've been given this authority all, Adam had authority over earth. Jesus says, I, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Like he has authority over all things. And that's like he entrusts them by extension with that authority. To wherever they go on this planet, to go with the authority of Jesus and to represent him. That's why Paul talks about us being ambassadors for Christ, right? Like we have his authority that's vested in us, that's given to us to go and represent him in how we speak, but also in how we live. Right? Jesus says to baptize them and then to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. Right? It's not just, hey, go keep telling people the gospel. Just keep, that's all you need to do. Just keep reproducing. Just keep telling people the gospel. But that as people come to faith, as life is given to them, then you call them and you are called yourself to actually live now as a follower of God. Live as a person who's under his rule. Live as a person who is now representing him and how you treat people, how you spend your time, how you think, how you operate as a person. We are to represent him wherever you go. And I would just say to Christians in the room, do some inventory. Think about what areas of your life are there where you are not representing Christ in the way that you live where you are misrepresenting God. You are misrepresenting your creator. What are our ways in your relationships or your resources, your time, your speech? What are ways that you are not letting your life be conformed to the commands of Jesus? We don't want to return to being like Adam, right? We want to live like Christ. We want to live representing him well. So in this great commission, this great text, Matthew 28, we see that we're called just like Genesis 1 to reproduce and to represent but I, I want to end with this. I don't want it to be lost on us how Matthew 28 ends, right? Because there's a parallel here as well back with Genesis 1. Because you remember in Genesis 1, we read that God blessed, then God commands, right? And then God provides, right? God, he gave them these commands and he says, I'm going to provide the food you need to actually do those commands, Right? That same thing happens in Matthew 28. We see a note that Jesus strikes a provision as well. It's not just a command, hey, go do this. Make sure you get other people to do this. But how Jesus ends, and often I would forget this uh, when I was learning this text as a kid. Jesus ends, 
After he says to baptize and teach them to observe what I've commanded you, he ends by saying, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Like Jesus didn't just ascend to heaven and just say, here's my commission, good luck. Like, go do it. And I'll check in a few thousand years from now. I'll return. Like Jesus, he commissions them. And then just like God in Genesis, God the Father in Genesis 1 said, hey, go live this and I'm going to give you your food. Like I'm going to give you what you need to actually live this out. Jesus does the same thing. And what Jesus promises, what he provides is much better than fruit and plants and trees, right? What Jesus promises to provide ongoingly is himself. He says, every day of your life, I am with you. Every moment of your life as you try to live this out, as you try to make disciples, as you try to reproduce me in this world, as you try to get people to follow me, as you try to represent me in this world, I am with you. And what we need uh, to live out this great commission isn't just better food, right? Like, it's not just better physical energy. What we need is supernatural power and supernatural presence. And that's what Jesus promises. That's what Jesus provides, is that he dwells within us by his Holy Spirit. So when we're cowardly or we feel discouraged or we feel downcast or when we feel elated and we feel joyful and we see some victories in life, in all of those moments, he is with us. He is supplying us with what we need and what we need most is him, right? And he promises to be with us always, even to the end of the age. So I hope that you have seen uh, these connections between the cultural mandate of Genesis 1, the Great Commission of Matthew 28. And I hope that you have grown. I, I prayed and I'll continue to pray that we all have grown, not just in connecting these dots, but in our desire to actually do these things, to actually be disciple makers, to actually be reproducing the image of God in this world, not just by bearing children, but by seeing converts made by seeing disciples, may, may we join God in this great mission that he gave to Adam and that he reiterated in Christ. Amen.